Well, I'm going to tell you about integrity, I'm going to, need to tell you a little bit about myself. So, I'm a former primary head, and really it's my experiences as a, as a primary head teacher that led me to set up integrity coaching. One of the things that I found as a head is that the role is incredibly lonely. And no one ever really tells you that. They see you as someone who's maybe really good at, t not maybe, obviously really good at teaching and learning, who's very good with people and with children. But it's not until you actually take on that role that you realise what that role really is about. Probably what I call the hidden aspects of school leadership and headship that just aren't there. And it was my own experiences of being ahead, finding it incredibly lonely, finding times where my emotions were just all over the place, and not really having a safe space in which to talk about that and to talk about the demands of the role. And that was all because very often I felt, well, if I were to show my vulnerabilities, if I were to show how I was really feeling, then people would think that Viv was weak. And that wasn't it. It was just that I needed a space just to be, to process what the role was asking of me. And that really was what eventually led me to set up Integrity Coaching, to be that first-class service for head teachers. If you think about it, in the business world, and also in, if you look at social workers, in the business world, they have opportunities in which they can process lessons learned. So, you know, top executives will have that place. And coaching isn't even... It's considered a an entitlement that it has to be stepping into that role. Social workers have supervision, a space where they can process the very difficulty, difficult cases they're having to work through. And for heads, they have virtually nothing. It's almost like, okay, you become a head teacher, we can tick the box now, you're complete, you're perfect. You don't need any more support. And that is just wrong. What I've learned is it's the beginning of a journey because you are actually growing into the role. And as your school develops, there's a personal leadership journey that, that happens alongside. And heads aren't told that. So, you know, integrity, we're there to provide a safe, confidential space for head teachers to process the emotional and psychological aspects of school leadership. Wow. Comprehensive answer. <laughs> and when was integrity formed? Okay, it was set up, where are we now? We're 2017. Um, so it was set up probably around 10 years ago, but the focus for heads didn't really come for me with real clarity until around about four years ago, when I really realised, actually, that's what integrity is about. That's where we need to focus. It's on our head teachers and ensuring that, they, that we keep them in the profession, really, because there's too many good people who are leaving because they haven't been given the right type of support. Well, there are so many parallels with what we try to do at Evolve mm. with the pastoral support for yeah. children. There's too much focus on the academic progress, yeah. not the personal progress. Yes. And I think about the work that we're doing internally with our management structure mm -hmm. as well at Evolve. And we can give them all of the technical skills they need, yeah. but it's the personal skills and how they deal with the challenges, which yes. is something which you don't get when you go to university. You don't exactly. get so exactly you, to have an organisation like yours that's mm. meeting that need mm. um, is obviously showing that there's um, either an opportunity for other organisations mm. to do similar work, or there's a gap in the yeah. um, training program that exists mm. for head teachers. Yeah. And do you see a day where it could be embedded within the MPQH as a as a, as a starting point? I wouldn't say actually embedded in the MPQH because the MPQH is all about preparation for headship and actually what we need to recognise is that once you step into the headship role it's an ongoing process of becoming, of developing 
So she'd been just as like psychologists. So I spoke at a conference. An educational psychologist came up to me and said, you know what, Viv? We can't practice unless we have ongoing one-to-one supervision, one-to-one support to ensure that we maintain best practice, that we are ethical, but also to ensure that we actually remain aligned with who we are and why we came into the profession. And she said, you know, that's what head teachers need. And she's right. It's an ongoing process. It's not about prep- just for preparation. For as long as a head is in the role, as far as I'm concerned, they should have, as part of their regular practice, coaching to enable them to be the best that they can be. If I can just quote some work, actually, from Harvard. So there's um, professors Annie McKee and Richard Boyatzis, and they've done work around individuals who work in high-power, high-stress roles. And they talk about... And so they, what they've done, they interviewed and they did research with you know, top executives. And they came up with the phrase of sacrifice syndrome. And when I first came across their work, I was like, oh, my God, this is exactly what head teachers do. So the sacrifice syndrome is they they describe it as a way of being where you're giving, 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 giving the whole time, meeting increased demands, increased pressures that exact huge emotional and psychological tolls upon you. And if you don't stop, if you don't find, find opportunities within your working life to actually refuel, you're going to burn out. And they say what every top executive needs, and I would argue what every school leader, head teacher needs, they say they need a renewal cycle. They need a way of being to counterbalance that frenetic way of working. And that's, and that's my argument. And that's why I say, actually, for coaching, for heads, it needs to be seen as part of what Boyatzis and McKee call the renewal cycle. Because too often what we have are head teachers who are caught in the sacrifice syndrome. It is, they, we have normalised detrimental ways of working and that can't continue so in answer to your question around do I ever see a day when it becomes part of the profession my argument is it has to be because otherwise we're going to continue with high rates of burnout high rates of early attrition in the profession And what I'd probably like to do, actually, is mm. rewind the clock a little bit yeah. and talk about mm. your journey yeah. and starting yeah. in, in the teaching world and see how that joins up with mm-hmm. some of the work that you're doing now. So yeah. how, what made you get into teaching in the first place? What made me get into teaching in the first place? Okay. The honest truth is I didn't believe in myself. So really? At secondary school... I'd been told by my teachers that I was, going to, I was a failure, basically, and I'd been told by my careers teacher when he asked us what we wanted to do when we left school, and I said I wanted to be a nursery nurse, he said to me, actually, looking at you, where you come from, you're probably going to end up working as a cashier in one of the local supermarkets. Wow. And, that, and that, was, that wasn't unusual at that time. Growing up in the 70s, South London, inner city... Well, my experience was that our teachers had very low expectations of, young, of, of people from my, from my background. So young black girls, growing up, South London, single-parent families, our teachers had very low expectations. So at school, I really didn't believe in myself and I really didn't think I could mount to much. So when it came to, like, university and so forth and polytechnics existed at the time, what did I do? I thought, said to myself, I can't go to university, I'm not smart enough. I can't go to polytechnic, I'm not smart enough. So, oh... 
There's something called Colleges of Higher Education, I'll do that. So it was really by default that I went into teaching. But then I was really fortunate, because when I went to teacher training college, just one of my tutors just saw something in me that no one else had ever seen in me before. And she was amazing, and she would just take me aside, and she would just talk to me about what she saw when I was in the classroom. Said, you know, Viv, you've got a level of maturity about you and the way that you engage with the children that I'm having to teach my older students. There's, you have something here. And that was the first time that someone had ever said to me that I was of worth and that I had something that I could offer. So in many ways, so it, you know, it wasn't by choice, but teacher training college, I was just very fortunate that I had a couple of tutors who saw something in me and, and encouraged me. To, and actually, teacher training college, that, was, that wasn't all easy because, again, obviously, for most of us, leaving home at 18... My first time leaving home, I'd grown up in multicultural London. I went to train in Reading. I hated it. I was, I think I was the only black student in my year. I would go to teacher train. I'd go out teaching teach practice, and I'd be in communities where it's very unusual for them to have a black person who wasn't a cleaner, or who wasn't some some other role. And so sometimes teaching practice was hard. I remember one teaching practice and the staff openly talking in quite derogatory terms about the black pupils and about black parents. And there was I in the staff room. I'm only young, 18, 19. I've never heard conversation. Well, I had at school, but, you know, generally, and it was a really, that was really isolating and scary. But you, you work through that, and I think that was my determination then when I left teacher training college. And then by that, that time, still growing in confidence, but knowing I was a good teacher, I was going to go back to South London, and I was going to serve those communities, because I was determined that no child was ever, ever going to have the experience of school that I had had, growing up in those communities, growing up with low expectation. That's not nice. So... That's one part of why I ended up going into teaching. There's another bit, if you want to hear about yeah, how I became a head teacher. Okay. <laughs> so when I took up my first teaching post, it was at the end of the 80s. So 84, 88, that's right. So we had just gone through the second round of the Brixton riots. And the school that I, where I t- took up my teaching practice was just on what's called Ephra Parade, which was known in those days as the front line. So it was where most of the trouble had occurred with the riots. And that was challenging. The head at the school, she was not prepared. She, she just was, couldn't serve the community, didn't know how to really engage with families who really felt on the edge and who really felt that they weren't listened to. So that was a real, in a sense, of coming back home, as it were, and wanting to make a difference, one of the first things I realised is you need to w- work in a school where there's good leadership. Because without good leadership serving these communities, mm. everything falls apart. So, you know, the number of children with high levels of social deprivation and awful things going on in, in their homes and their families. But one thing I learned was if you build those relationships, then even though the rest of the school, things might not be going right, in your classroom you can create an oasis for those children. And I know that's what I did. I created that oasis for those children. But I only stayed there a year. 
I then went on to work at my second school in Brixton and I stayed there for three years. And then what happened was um, the government introduced back then some funding to support children from the new Commonwealth. At that time, it's called Section 11 funding. So I then took a sideways move and worked in Section 11. But again, and this is what tends to happen in my career, people would, at certain points, would just stop me and just cause me to pause. And they say, if I see this in you, just want you to think about X, Y, and Z. So at that certain point in time, the head teacher of the school that I was at, he said, OK, Viv, you're doing Section 11 work, and I understand the reasons why, that you want to make a difference and serve your community, but that funding's not going to be around forever. Where do you want to make greatest impact? And so he got me thinking, and he encouraged me, actually, to do an MA. He said, why don't you do an MA? Why don't you do that? Okay, I can see that you really want to do this work, but just do this way to open your horizons and think where you want to go. So I did an MA in Education and Leadership Management at the Institute of Education. And, then at the, and he's right, because then that did open my eyes. It made me think, hold on a minute. Actually, Section 11, I'm, I'm, I'm supporting in classrooms, but I don't have my own class again. And I'm not, and, am I really affecting the change in the way in which I want to? So now I then went back to mainstream. And to cut a long story short, I, I taught in the infants. I became head of Key Stage 1. After I became head of key stage one, this is in another school now, the role came up for deputy head. I didn't want to go for it. Again, it just always happens in my life. But then people said, Viv, why don't you go for it? Viv, really think you should go for it? Aren't you see how, you know, staff respond to you, the kids, the families? And I was. I was really, really scared. And I remember walking across the... So as our playground and the interviews were being held in a building opposite the school... Two things I remember. One, entering the school that day and a member of staff saying, if Viv gets it, it's just because she's black. Walking across the playground, one of the kids in my class, obviously not knowing that I'm going for this interview, said to me, Miss Crumb, where are you going? Look like you're going on a date. And that just made me laugh. That just really just got like, oh, Ricky would be, but, you know, but it lifted what I'd heard. It was kind of like, you know what, Ricky, I'm doing it for you. I'm dressing up like this in a suit because, Ricky, one day I'm hoping to become deputy of this school. So I go in for the interview and I was scared. Then they asked me a question. And they asked me um, why, I'm surprised, I'm tearing up at this. They asked me why did I want to be head deputy of the school. And then everything that I'd known, everything from when, what I told you earlier about at school and how I'd been treated, and I said, you know, I don't ever want any child to go through what I've been through. And I cried a bit like I'm tearing up now and I had to leave the room. But I got the job. Got it. I couldn't believe it. So I became deputy, but I was only deputy for six weeks because Ofsted came. Ah. And it was the first time that Ofsted had, um, it was when they were just introduced. And the school was challenging, no doubt about it, the school was challenging. But the head, I was on her side. She had a difficult staff. You know, she really, really did. And there were staff who weren't on her side, staff who weren't there for her... Because it, it, it had been a cosy ride for them. And she'd come in and said, no, we can't have these low expectations. We've got to serve this community. But we failed Ofsted. And she said to me, Viv, I'm going to go. I went, you can't. And I cried. <laughs> I go, you can't. We were going to leave this school 
together. You can't. No, Viv, I'm gonna go. So, that was horrible. That was really, really horrible because then what we had, we had a series of acting heads who, if I'm very, very honest, I didn't care about our school, I didn't care about the kids. Mm. It was just a tick on their CV that they'd done this stint in a, in a London primary school. But I did. I cared about those kids. This couldn't, you know, I didn't want this to happen. So what? So we had a year of acting heads, but really I was running the school. But I didn't realise that at the time, because mm. when you failed an offset, when you're in special measures, you have regular HMI monitoring mm -hmm. visits. So I was getting in really early. I'd lay out everything on the head teacher's desk, saying, look, you do this, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. Go back, teach a whole day, come back. I'm checking on the head to make sure the head is... But I didn't realise. I was just doing it because I loved the school and I loved the community. And then after a year, the governors said, Viv, you've been deputy for a year now. We don't want any more um, acting heads. Contractually now, you can actually step up and be acting head. Again, you're going to hear me say, I was scared. I'm like, no, I'm only 30 or 31. I can't be acting head. Then again, everyone, Viv, 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 you know, everyone loves you in the school community, you know you have to do this. So then I'm like, okay, all right, I'll do it because I'm going off on maternity leave <laughs> in, <laughs> in six months or whatever. I'll do it because then I'm going to go off and I'm going to have my first child and I'm going to be a mum. I'll do it. But then, as life would have it, literally... I can't remember how many weeks before I'm about to go on maternity leave. I get a knock on the door. It's the chair of government. Fifth, so I'd like to have a word with you. You know that we're going to be putting the advert out again for head teacher. We know that you're about to go on maternity leave, but we'd like you to apply for the post. I'm like, no. <laughs> oh, not again. No, no. And then again, the same story, because my office is here. The um, admin team were next door, very thin walls. Then they knew why he'd come to see me. They kind of worked it out. Viv? Oh, no! Viv? Mm -hmm. <laughs> no! But then I spoke to a few friends and I spoke... And then, and also the kids, you know, the kids also wanted to know. They knew I was going, it was a big thing with going off and having a baby. And there was one particular child, I'll never forget his name, David Masisi who after we'd gone into special measures, he came up to me and he said, Miss Grant, are we failures? And that just broke my heart. I thought, yeah, that's what you're told, aren't you? In this community that we serve here in Stockwell, South London, high rise estate, that's what everyone tells you, isn't it, that you're failures. And he's one of the brightest kids in our school as well. And that broke my heart. And then I thought, I just had to have a long thought. I thought, well, okay, for David, he's still gonna be here, okay. And then maybe I just thought, you know what, if it's meant to be, it's gonna be. So I'm scared. I'm only 31, I'm about to have my first child. I thought if it's meant to be, it will be. So literally, this is the honest truth, for eight and a half months pregnant, I was interviewed for the post of head of a school, that school that was in special measures. And I got it. I didn't cry that time, <laughs> but I got it. So after five and a half months, I went back. And actually, even during that five and a half months, I was leading the school to a certain degree because the acting head didn't know what he was doing. And so it was ringing me quite often. But after five and a half months, I went back. And then I say the rest is history, really, because by the November, the school was out of special measures. 
it was by no means an easy walk, as it were, to then keep the store on an upward trajectory. But that's what we did. And so in answer, you asked the question, I said, I'd tell you, if you really wanted, that's how I got into headship. Wow. And looking back, mm-hmm. are there any moments of... Uh, if you start about your teaching role, first of all, yeah. are there any moments that really stand out, which make, make you proud now, looking back? I think what makes me proud is looking back, actually, is when I see them now, when I see them today. Or if they find me on LinkedIn or something, and I get these messages out of the blue. So I, so particular child, Daniel, only just very recently emailed me, Miss Grant, I don't know if you remember me, but I'm Daniel so-and-so. I'm now a teacher at the Brit School, and I'll never forget... I was renowned for telling Nancy stories. And Nancy is a character from the Caribbean, a spider. And I loved his stories. And I'd always, very often, at least one assembly a week, I'm telling an Nancy story with a moral and a tale in it and something for the children to think about. And he said, Miss Grant, it's because of you that I went on to university, that I did an English degree. And I chose to do, you know, I can't remember what they called it now, not their thesis or whatever, you know, around your old tradition of storytelling. And it's because of you. And I was like, oh! almost 30 now or you know another child Ennio single parent family from Portugal his dad dropped dead with a heart attack when he was around six he barely spoke a word of English and we did all we could to get him through school and support his mum I don't even remember her name to this day Sidalia and we'd make time for them we'd do these special projects with Ennio and he contacted me out of the blue this strapping 20-odd-year-old young man telling me that how he got through university and now he's in his first marketing role. And Miss Grant, you don't know the difference that you made. And that's when I look back and I'm like, oh, my God. You know, you, you just don't know the lives that you're touching because you're just doing it day in, day out. And you get a buzz from those from being with the children, but it's the, it's the years on, because I feel old now. <laughs> and I have, you know, I have children of my own now who are teenagers. So Isaac, who I spoke about earlier, God, he's 19 now. But, you know, I look back, and, and but it's like some of these children who I taught when they were seven, eight, nine, they're still, you know, they will find me. Or if they see me in the street, Miss Grant, you haven't changed. You look just the same. Oh, don't say that to me. And then they tell me what they've achieved in their lives. They're like, oh, my God, I'm so proud of you. And then when they say, but Miss Grant, you don't know. Well, then they go on to tell me the difference that I've made. It, it touches me. It really touches me. Well, I think it would touch anybody. Mm. But in considering that teaching wasn't a career that, uh, that you'd yeah. choose or you'd... Mm-hmm. you'd um, yeah. Picked as an option then. Mm. We, looking back, are you glad that you made that decision? Most definitely. It's in my, yeah, and, and the work that I do now, I kind of, I know that it's my work and I know this is it's what I'm meant to be doing. And so, you know, they often say, you know, you're much wiser with hindsight. Yes, I can look back now and say, maybe it was always meant to be because all those experiences, they've shaped me and they now shape the work that I do now. So, yeah. And winding the clock back again, what advice would you give yourself starting out on that teaching career now with all your experience? Be kind to yourself, that you're not going to get everything right the first time around, and that, you know, focus on the good. Bad things are going to happen, but remember the smile of that child who got something right, or that child who made you laugh. I mean, I think about, you know, some of the most difficult times, but then it was, it was just reflecting on a day 
and you know I can just think my, you know I used to have some really really cheeky kids in my class but you know they made my days the best you know and I can remember this particular child Kyle, Scar Kyle Scarlett who was so cheeky and I can't remember what it was and I saw all the kids laughing why are they all laughing it's story time and some teachers might respond in a different way but he put a drawing pin on my chair. It, it just made me laugh. It just, because I just knew what Carl was about. Lucky I hadn't sat on it. But again, it just made me laugh because they were just so cheeky. And it wasn't about disrespect or whatever. They just knew that with Miss Grant, I was, that there were things to enjoy and you could laugh about life, even if things were difficult. And they were just lovely. So giving advice back to myself, just remember to focus on the good things. Hmm. And those moments when your kids just crack you up so much that you forget, you know, how difficult or stressful a day might have been. Yeah. And I know that we're currently facing a teacher recruitment crisis. Mm. So what would you say to people out there considering teaching as a career? I'd say think about it very carefully. I really would say that. Think about it very carefully. And if you feel, we don't use this word so much anymore, but if you still feel it's a vocation, and if it's something that is calling you because you really feel deep within you, it's because you want to make a difference, then go for it. But do not go for it because the DfE says, we'll give you this bonus because we don't have physics teachers or maths teachers. Money should never be a determinant for going into teaching. And most teachers will tell you they have not gone into it. Yeah. For the money, you go into it because your heart says that's where you're meant to be. Mm. That's what I would say. And thinking about um, the challenge with school leadership, and mm. I know from a from an integrity coaching point of view, mm. you'll have a view on this. But what do you think is the biggest challenge that school leaders face right now? There are so many. I think if I had a head teacher sitting here right next to me now, they would probably say budget and the constraints of, and what that means. However, I think what I would say the biggest issue school leaders face right now is not having that space to process what the demands of the role are asking of them. And I say that for two reasons. When my book Staying Ahead came out, I had to do an interview on Radio 4. No one could have prepared me for the responses to that. And it was also coupled with an article in The Guardian. Suddenly, the phone wouldn't stop ringing. And it was head saying, thank you. And it was also head saying, can I tell you? Can I tell you what I'm really going through? And that taught me something. I knew it all along anyway, really. But if we're going to keep heads, you know, and go back to your biggest challenge, the biggest challenge they can do, actually... As much as the budget constraints and everything else are thinking pain up the backside, they'll manage it. They will find a way to do that. They'll find a way to get their kids, the kids through the SATs or whatever. They will find a way to, you know, to write the school development plan and to talk to Ofsted. They will find a way. The biggest challenge, and I can tell you that because the majority of my week, I would say at least 80%, maybe a little bit less, is spent with heads on the phone who will ring up. And it's about the inner work. No one is helping them to process the inner demands of being a school leader. Everyone is saying, yes, do the out-facing bits, do the outward bit, be really fantastic, show confidence. And of course, you've got to do that. No one is saying to them, 
that there's an inner work that accompanies that. And it's that that I think is the biggest challenge. Hmm. And that leads us nicely into uh, this next section here, because I'm really keen to explore work-life balance and what that mm-hmm. means to you, both yeah. in your current role and what you're doing yeah. now and how you achieve that as a head teacher yourself. Mm. So what does work-life balance mean to you? Right, okay. My thoughts around this have been greatly influenced, one, by my work with head teachers, working day in and day out with them personally, but also by two authors who I really love. One, Parker J. Palmer, who's an American activist and does a lot of work in education. Two, an Irish poet called David White. And what Parker J. Palmer and David White talk about is actually... We do ourselves a disservice by talking about work-life balance because what we're doing is we're actually... When we do that, what we're talking about is almost saying there are opposing forces where one needs has to get the better of the other. And what they talk about is integration. There needs to be an integration of who the individual is with all the different aspects of their lives. So David White, for example, actually, he probably says it so much better than me. I've got his book here. He says, hang on, we can start to realign our understanding and our efforts away from trading and bartering parts of our, our, and trading parts of ourselves as if they were saleable commodities and more towards finding a central conversation that can hold all of these three aspects together. These three aspects David White specifically talks about. He specifically talks about work, Self, and he talks about marriage, but if we think about partnerships, relationships, he, his argument is, and I have to be in agreement, is that actually, where it's us, the, the individual, we can't separate ourselves off. Yeah. In terms of getting, going back to the phrase you use, work-life balance, let's maybe think about integration of self. Let's think about how we bring integration, harmony, between, with all the aspects that life asks of us. So David White, he talks about the, actually he talks about the conversations. He said, let's be asking about the conversations and questions that relationships ask of us, that work asks of us, and also what ourself asks of us. How can we find a way that integrates those? And I think that's a much healthier way of actually looking at it. It's an interesting perspective, and for, for head teachers that might be listening to this now, mm. how, how would you? Are there any practical steps? Is there anything that you think that they could do to to um, to, to uh, demonstrate that in their work in practice or in their in their lives generally? How they could bring that? Um... I think what my experience tells me, and you also asked me how I integrate this with my own life. It has to be the inner work. Now, that might feel, seem a very strange term for some heads out there. And what, what the hell is Viv talking about, doing the inner work? Well, you've got to come to know yourself. I have a very good friend and colleague, Giles Barrow, who argues he's, he's beginning more and more to talk about teaching being a series of interruptions. And by that, Giles, forgive me for listening to this and I've got this wrong, but by that he means that in teaching, every time a teacher engages with a young person they're actually interrupting something. And I think what Giles will say is they are interrupting a growth process, a development process for the young person. He, and his argument is that a teacher only has the right to do that if they know who they are. Because however they will interrupt or engage with a young person will depend upon their level of self-knowledge and self-understanding. And I think that's very powerful. And I equally see that 
with school leaders and when you ask about practical steps it has to be knowing who you are because when we know who we are we know our triggers we know our emotional responses we know the makeup of who we are that then filters out into every aspect of how we hold our lives and how we show up the best example i can give john is in my book and i talk about myself i think do i talk do i mention that in the book yes i do so i talk about how one night going to do a home visit how i end up breaking down in tears but the backstory to that is that growing up, Viv Grant had the superwoman mentality. And that's because I was brought up in a single parent family, youngest of three girls. My mum had to work, obviously, to be able to pay the bills, clothe and feed us. But also, in terms of my mum's upbringing was, you never asked for help. You never showed signs of weakness because it would be turned against you. So that's what I grew up with, but I didn't know that. So we talk about, in coaching, about, limp, about beliefs and ways that we understand ourselves and what creates our inner architecture. Now, I do believe that that home visit that I did, did that night would cause me to break down in tears and rethink how I was leading myself as a head teacher was linked to the fact that I didn't know myself very well. I accepted it as normal not to ask for help. I accepted it as normal to be seen as a strong one. And if you ask my husband, he will say the same, yeah. In our early days of marriage, that's how Viv showed up. But as I have learned that actually, you know what? It's good to ask for help. It's good to engage with your emotions. It's good to know who you are. That has enabled me to do the work that I do now. But it's also meant that my relationships have a different tone to them. So, do you, so when, when you're going back to your piece about the practical piece, it's not necessarily a practical do, but it is a sense of actually, if I want to lead my life in a much more fulfilling way, because actually I think that's what the real question should be, then actually I have to be prepared to do the inner work. Now, I could, you could guess, I could talk for ages about this, but you look at the work of you know, Abraham Maslow, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, and we're really good, aren't we? Talk about, you know, we've got to have our, make, have our survival needs met, then we've got to have our safety needs met and our belonging needs met. We, I think, we've still got a long way to go to understand about what needs to be done to have our esteem needs met and to reach that very top of the pyramid, self-actualising. Isn't that why you're in this? Because you want every child to flourish. I want every head teacher to flourish. Well, we need to recognise what Maslow's talking about there. He's saying those steps... Four and five, self-esteem, self-actualising, that's all to do with inner work. You don't get there unless you're prepared to do that. And I'm sure you've got some examples of um, head teacher clients who you've worked mm. with over the years who yeah. have done this inner work. Yeah. So how have you, and when you've kept in contact with them, yeah. which I'm sure you have yeah. done, how, how, how has their approach and their... Um, their, their, their life changed as a result of doing some of this inner work? Not just within being ahead, but yeah. outside of being ahead as well. I think, well, I don't necessarily talk to my clients about their private life unless they want to bring it in. But what we see is, and what they tell us is, uh, actually I can give a really good example, because we've just been doing some evaluations of the NUT, so I've got some very current um, examples in my head of heads that we're working with through the NUT how this inner work has impacted. So, so what it has meant for some is that they're actually... OK, and this might sound really tiny, 
But one had saying, for example, that she realised that you know, there's a need for all of her, herself and her staff to feel safe. So if we think about this in, with Maslow, okay, so Maslow's thing is about one of the levels, I think it's the second one, is about meeting safety needs. And she recognised that as a school community, not as all school communities do, you're responding to need in a very reactive way, day in, day out. And she realised that when she was responding in that way, in terms of meeting the needs of parents, so on a Friday, she carried that with her into the weekend. It then impacted on her on the Monday. And now, very deliberately, so this is about part of doing the inner, the inner work allows you to be more conscious of your decisions and how you're making them. So very deliberately said to her staff, we won't deal with those issues on a Friday. If a parent contacts us, or if something happens, unless it's safeguarding, really urgent, we'll, we'll do it in a very nurturing and supportive way, but we'll deal with it midweek. Because we need to have a space at the end of a working week to really get back to ourselves, to really get back to a state of equilibrium. Equally, when you ask about ways in which heads have done the inner work, another example I can give is that sometimes, and we all, I'm doing this like this because in coaching we have, we can have different, per, we can have different tools that help us to understand different personality types and where they come from. So, two very particular personality types, forgive me for doing this, because the way the model works. Sometimes we can have, we will have belief, belief systems or ways in our lives that drive us because we want to meet a need, we want to feel valued. But if we don't know that that behaviour is driving how we respond to other people, and this is, I see this very often, we get caught. We get caught in giving, giving, giving the whole time. That's what I say about the sacrifice syndrome. But putting ourselves in situations where really we don't need to be the rescuer, and, and that's too easy for heads to do, because the role says that's who you've got to be. But if you don't know the drivers behind that, and if you don't know how to stop that thought process, you carry on like that. And we have lots of examples of heads who've had to, been able to stop and say, hold on a minute, ah. Oh. And you just need to ask them a question, the right question. They go, oh, God. So that's why I respond like that. So that's why I don't need to do that anymore. I don't need to keep rescuing. And I've got a, a current client who I, I, I adore, all my clients, who for her that was really key because she kept saying yes. If I can't say no, I keep saying yes. And it, all it took was a little bit of questioning, unpicking, where did that come from? To help her then just get, get herself back on track. And this was also impacting in her private life as well. I don't need to be the mm. rescuer. That need does not need to be... I'm getting that need to be liked, met in, a, in a, an unhealthy way. There has to be other ways now to do that, but also other more aligned ways to show up as a head teacher. So... I've given a long answer <laughs> into how you know they can how practically you can go about doing the inner work. But essentially, and this is why I love coaching, it is just a conversation that honors that. It's a conversation that honors who you are and can listen at a deeper level. That's all it takes. It's a conversation that's, that when a head teacher says, you know, God, I'm really exhausted, or you know, this parent really got under my skin. It's a conversation that doesn't start with, oh, yeah, our parents really annoying. Oh, yeah, that, that, that made me feel really bad. It's a conversation that instead says, and what's, what do you think that's about? What's that telling you? 
and then bit by bit by bit by bit can go deeper and deeper until the head can say for themselves, actually, that's not the real issue, is it? This is the real issue. And if I deal with that, then actually that parent or any other individual that might get under my skin, they're not going to anymore because I've got to the root of the problem.